What is reason? On this episode of the Campus Street Podcast, number 73, Cosmic Skeptic versus Reason, part two. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome, everybody, to the Camp Street Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, FLFnetwork.com. And if you head over to the FLFnetwork.com, you can learn a little bit more about everything that we have going on, some of our other podcasts. I think we're up to like maybe five total shows now. And we also have some other membership benefits. So if you go over there and you uh, sign up and then you punch in Campus Preacher, uh, you kind of help our little podcast here into some sort of code. I don't really, to be honest with you, I don't really know how it works, but you go over there, I guess if you sign up for the uh, membership, which gives you all sorts of goodies behind the scenes from worldview to eschatology, I believe Toby on Proverbs and a handful of other stuff. Um, But if you punch in Campus Preacher, even though you find me as Campus Pastor, you will help our little show here. And uh, we're we're just trying to grow. And I am currently in my, uh, I've been in an apartment here for about one month, maybe a little bit over, uh, but I'm still rocking an air mattress and my furniture has still not arrived. Um, I ordered new furniture, new bed, new couch, new chair, new end table, and I was not expecting eight weeks or so for these things to get delivered. So here I am, I guess I moved in on September the 10th, and so here I am at the end of October, basically, still without a bed. And the bed I got was an avocado, which is a little bit fancy, pricey, one of those like, to your doorstep, you unseal it and it pops open and all that sort of jazz. Uh, but a guy who helps the ministry, he said, uh, you know, a good night's sleep is the most important thing you can get. And so he's like, so get, get whatever bed you want. So I, I spent endless hours researching and I was down between a purple and an avocado and like a Satva, S-A-A-T-V-A, I believe. And I ended up going with the avocado. What I was not expecting was to be eight weeks out with still no delivery. So I call them today and supposedly they're now throwing in pillows. I don't know if that's very helpful, but supposedly that's a $200 value. Um, and so who knows? I, I told him I was going to cancel if it's not here next week. So if you're looking for a mattress, I cannot recommend avocado. Um, just way too slow in the delivery, but apparently it's handmade. So who knows? I'll, I'll let you know in a couple weeks how I'm getting good night's sleep, but I will say that uh, after a couple months on the air mattress, uh, you're not getting good night's sleeps. So whatever. But I'm also in my room, which is still a little tinny. Hopefully this sounds okay. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I got my Zoom H6 um, and I need to get some like foam up on the walls and I'm going to get this place situated and start making some videos, hopefully on a daily basis in the probably the next five or six days here. And I also got a brand new HP like 32 inch TV or something like that. Not a TV, but a monitor. And it was like 199 bucks off of Best Buy. So it was marked down. So I got that thing. So I feel well organized. I feel like I'm running a real operation finally, opposed to just plugging things into my MacBook, which I guess is maybe a little bit more folky and uh, maybe better run, but I feel like I got an official operation. Um, But what I want to talk about tonight is uh, basically what is reason. Because one of the things that comes up all the time on campus is immediately, prove God exists. And then I always ask them, what do you mean by proof? That's almost always the first question I ask. And they usually don't, you know, proof. <laughs> that's that's usually how they respond. You know, proof. No, I'm asking you what proof is because in the history of philosophy, there are, uh, it's a little more complex than this, but in, in simplistic terms, you kind of have empiricism and you have rationalism. And empiricism is basically what dominates the American landscape. And that's the idea that I will only believe those things which I can see, taste, touch, and feel. Um, now, in the history of philosophy, there is a, an alternative view called rationalism, which put a much greater emphasis 
on there being a faculty in man that was able to uh, grasp necessary connections. So when you studied geometry, um, those things were giving you certainty and you were able to reason through those things. So you, without even having a triangle before you, um, now the triangle before you that you draw on the board might help you understand the concepts better, uh, but you don't need that on the board to grasp what it is. You don't actually need to see a triangle to end up grasping the mathematics. What you need is rationality. You don't need the empirical impression of a triangle to get that. So in very simplistic terms, uh, in the history of philosophy, proof, you know, are you an empiricist or are you a rationalist? And so what I want to discuss on this episode is like, yeah, what is reason? Because oftentimes when someone's like, give, you us, give us a reason for your belief in Christianity, um, that's actually going to look like two different things depending on who you're talking to. And so for your your empiricists, they're going to use reason one way, and your rationalist is going to be re use reason another way. And what I want to discuss in this episode is how a rationalist is using the term. And I think we want to emphasize this component, especially in our culture that is adamantly anti-rationalistic. Um, they, they, you know, they even have reached the point that they believe that logic uh, is a social construction of white Western men and things like that. Uh, you also have philosopher Richard Warty, who's a postmodernist, and I think he uh, has some insight here. He argues, uh, as well as uh, a man like Max Horkheimer in his Eclipse of Reason. And so, so if you've come across the term critical race theory, that kind of has its roots in critical theory. And Max Horkheimer uh, was a critical theorist. And what he argues is basically that reason is a tool of the enlightenment that is basically a replacement for God. And so when the enlightenment comes along and man throws off God, they still have a divine faculty. Rorty, as well as Horkheimer, kind of argues this, that this idea of reason is, is a quasi-divine faculty. So it's something that God has, uh, that, so it's a replacement for God. It's a limiting concept and it's a controlling concept. And so it imposes itself. Um, but they want to say it doesn't really exist, and that's why it becomes this power play. And so if you ever hear people argue against reason and the West being a logocentric uh, culture and you know throwing off kind of those concepts, they, they want to say that rationality doesn't really exist, but it's something uh, that Western culture has invented to impose on people and to control things. And so that's much of what's coming out of um, kind of strands of postmodernism as well as the critical theory and I think even critical theory to postmodernism is connected, but that's not um, that centrally important. The, the main thing I want you to grasp when it comes to uh, thinking of what reason is, I want you to think that reason is a faculty in man, just as you have eyeballs, you have this faculty in you, uh, you know, call it a mind, call it your consciousness, um, but there is a faculty in you that through thinking you're able to grasp non-empirical truths and you're able to understand things that are true about the structure of the universe and the structure of the natural order that are not empirical in nature. So if you're having a discussion with somebody and they ask you to give reasons for Christianity, uh, you want to ask them, you know, what do you mean by reason? And then they're going to look at you maybe a little cross-eyed like, you know, reason. Uh, because the minute you ask most people what reason is, they don't really think about it. Um, but I want for you, at least in this context, to think of reason as a faculty that you have that enables you to grasp necessary truths. And so think about along these lines. So I've never been to China. 
uh, here they speak Chinese. I've never been there to verify it. And so for the empiricist, you would have to say, well, you have to get to China to actually know whether or not they speak Chinese or not. You can accept testimony if you want, but for you to really know, you have to go over there and have the, uh, have the impressions of their language, be it Mandarin or Cantonese, pressed down upon you. Then you can actually know that, it, that they're speaking Chinese. Whereas you and I would say, before we get to China, we know that if you have two balls and you add another two balls, you're going to have four balls. And if we go to the moon and you have two balls and you have four balls, uh, two balls and two balls, we're going to get four balls. So whether we're on the moon, and I've never been to the moon, so I don't know if there's any water on there. I can accept people's testimony. Um, but I guarantee that if there's two bodies of water and then there's another two bodies of water, we can say that there are four bodies of water. So your rational capacity uh, maybe the easiest way for it to be seen is in something like mathematics. You can see the necessary connection that every time you have two and you add another two to them to that, you're necessarily going to get four. Whereas, you know, whether or not apples exist on the moon, uh, well, we would, you know, we would accept that by, by testimony that there aren't apples and all that sort of jazz. But in theory, we wouldn't know that until we got there uh, if you're an empiricist. So you need that sense impression to actually know um, the, for, for the for the or for the empiricist for us to know something, but for the rationalist, uh, you can grasp certain things by necessary truths, and other things we'd want to say that we need uh, the sense impression of it. And so, when it comes to the bigger discussion of rationality, uh, and we are having that discussion with somebody, we we kind of want to pound home that point and make that distinction. And the and that's why if you are on Twitter and there's a man named James Lindsay who's worth following if you're on Twitter. He is an atheist. He recently came out with a book called uh, Cynical Theories, and he's one of the leaning, basically, proponents of critical theory. And the reason he is, ironically enough, is because he was an atheist, and he saw that critical theory um, and critical race theory particularly came into the new atheist movement, and it kind of undermined and destroyed everything that they held dear. And so it kind of ripped apart their movement, including to a little bit bringing down Richard Dawkins, at least certain strands of uh, feminism did. And so that was the beginning of his impetus against uh, kind of a heavy postmodernity and kind of your identity politics and your critical theory stuff. And so he is uh, kind of, yeah, he, but he's a rationalist. He's an enlightenment guy. And so, but if you hop on Twitter and you follow him a little bit, and I haven't seen as much recently, but he was in a big debate over whether or not two plus two equals four is a social convention, something that you and I invent, or if it's something that is necessarily true. And James Lindsay wanted to argue that it's necessarily true, whereas all these postmodernists want to say it was a social convention. And, you know, initially you might think that's absurd, but, you know, if you think of the speed limit, like, so what's the social convention? If you think of the speed limit being 55 miles an hour, it used to be 55, they raised it to 65. Clearly the speed limit is a social convention. You can change it without contradiction. Okay, and that's going to be one of the change, one of the key things. A social convention you can readily change without contradiction. And so the place where it comes to a, an immediate rub, say culturally for us Christians, we're going to say that marriage is ordained by God, and therefore uh, it's between one man, one woman, not any way that we want to define it. For the culture, they want to say that marriage is a social convention. So whether we define it between one man, one woman, one man, one man, two men, three men, however they want to define it, since it's a social convention, it can be changed readily. And so there's no contradiction in it. As Christians, um, there is no necessary contradiction to the idea that marriage is between one man, one woman, um, as there are marriages in the Old Testament that include one man and many women. Um, but 
you know, from the beginning, God has you know, not made it so. So the question becomes, you know, how do we tease out these sorts of things? So that's, that's where the, the, some of the issues get a little more difficult. But are there things that are necessarily true? And what are the nature of the necessary truth? And there are basically three views in the history of philosophy that I'm going to kind of brush upon in this episode. And the first one is kind of goes back to historic, someone like Plato. And so if you think of who Plato is, um, if he was looking at a horse in a field, um, he would say that, there's a sense in which that horse is participating in a thing called hoarseness, which is this universal ideal. Maybe the easiest way to think about it is if you, you look at the color red. And so, you know, some of you I've never, ever met. I don't know what colors you have seen. But if I mention the uh, color red, some color red pops up into your head. And there's going to be some sort of correlation uh, or correspondence with what I have the idea of red to be. And if I say, you know, a woman in a red dress, that conjures up another image, or a red car, a candy apple red car, that's going to conjure up another image. And so what we have in the history of rationalism is before us is a particular red, but because there is this thing that has the manifestation wherever you are, like if you're looking around your room, there might be something red. I'm looking at my MacBook and the bar going across the screen is red. Um, and so you have these particular instances of this universal redness. And so in historic rationalism, they'd want to say that redness actually exists, that this theoretical concept of redness, and not only that, that redness itself somehow participates in a thing called colors like green and everything else. So for the historic rationalist, um, you don't just know the individual object before you, but you kind of have a whole web of what, what in philosophy are called universals. And that becomes important because as Christians, we'd want to affirm that there are in fact universals, that there are things that reflect the eternal nature and attributes of God. And I would want to put in that thing, things like the Logos um, logic, uh, things like mathematics and that sort of stuff. So, so that's kind of the first way, the traditional view. And it tells you something real about the real world and our mind, uh, the faculty that we have, tells us something real about the nature of the universe. So the universe itself is reasonable, going back to our position last week, because why? Because there's a creator who is himself the Logos that created the heavens and the earth. That's why this faculty in us corresponds with the world outside of us. That's pretty vital because oftentimes that's just missed. And so why is that the case? As Christians, we want to say, well, the universe is reasonable uh, because the Logos created it. That, that which is reasonable created it. Um, the other view of reason that kind of came along and kind of helped really create skepticism is by a man named Immanuel Kant. And so Immanuel Kant's kind of uh, a, a watershed figure in the history of philosophy. Um, and the next view we're going to look at by kind of David Hume and the empiricists, uh, uh, Kant says they woke him up from his dogmatic slumber. And to I'm being overly simplistic on Immanuel Kant's views, but it's I, I, you, you can grasp what he's doing here. So what you have to think of is that, that Kant says, yes, we very much truly grasp necessarily connect, necessary connections. So we do know that two plus two equals four. But the rub for Immanuel Kant is that we don't know that's true of the real world. It's just the way that our brain kind of cuts the universe around us. And so any necessity that there is in the universe isn't because we really truly know the universe, but because we have these categories cemented in our brains that are basically cutting the universe with this necessity. Um, so think of Emmanuel uh, or Cornelius Van Til. He has a, a quote that oftentimes people uh, say, and I'll, I'm going to read from this. And I think, and so there's a grain of truth to 
kind of what Kant's saying if we follow Van Til out, but, but just hear me out here. So Van Til says, because of the fall, the intellect of fallen man may, as such, be keen enough. It can therefore formally understand the Christian position. It may be compared to a buzzsaw that is sharp and shiny, ready to cut the boards that come to it. Let us say that the carpenter wishes to cut 50 boards for the purposes of laying the floor of a house. He has marked his boards. He has set his saw. Um, he being at one end of the marked on the board, but he does not know that uh, his seven-year-old son has tampered with the saw and changed its set. The result is that every board he saws is cut slantwise and thus unusable because the board is too short, except at the point where the saw first made contact with the wood. As long as the set of the saw is not changed, the result will always be the same. And so if you think of what, what you know, Van Til's illustration there for Kant, the mind of man is cemented a certain way and it just cuts everything to it. Um, and, and so you don't really know the actual real world. So actually, that's kind of the root of kind of much of modern skepticism is kind of this idea that we each individually have our minds. We don't really know the real world. And at best, we have these social constructions and everything else. But any sort of necessity that we grasp, according to Kant, in contrast to the traditional view, um, is what we impose on the world. And so you can see the big gap between the original one says, their traditional view says, nope, we really know the real world through our rational faculties. Kant says along, comes along and says, we have this thing called reason, we have this thing called necessity, um, but it's what we impose on the world. And so we don't ever really know that two plus two equals four. It's just what our brain's telling us to do. So that's another view of reason, which is, um, you know, pretty, you know, skeptical, I guess. So so if you're, but so the thing is, if you're debating with that person and they're going to be that skeptical, you have to realize the limits of what you can argue with them about. And much of what you're trying to do is show why their skepticism ends up being fallacious. But the, the important thing right now is just getting a basic understanding of their view of reason. The third view of reason is going to be this is David Hume says this, and this is known as Hume's fork. He says, all the objects of human reason, right? So, so he's bringing about the concept of reason here, uh, or inquiry, may naturally be divided into two kinds, to wit, relation of ideas and matters of fact. Now, the, the concept of relation of ideas might seem kind of foreign to you, but, but the basic idea of what he's getting at there is, so if I make the comment, all bachelors are unmarried, um, the idea of a bachelor is unmarried is just, it's just true by definition. So it's not necessarily telling you anything necessary about the cosmos. Um, it's just about the way we use ideas. And so the concept of relations of ideas there is how we are using words. So the relationship between bachelor being an unmarried man is necessary truth in the sense that that's just the way we use language. Um, so it's not necessarily true in the context of the universe being a, a certain way, um, such as two plus two equals four. So it's not in the exact same category. The next idea that he sets forth are matters of fact. And the easiest way to think about this is if you know, every daffodil you've ever seen, um, it might seem reasonable that the next daffodil you'll see will be yellow. If everyone's you've ever seen is yellow, it's reasonable that the next one you'll see is going to be yellow. But if you think about it, there's no necessity that daffodils must be yellow unless there's something inherent to a daffodil um, that must therefore universally make it yellow. Um, but that's not a necessary truth. That'd be a contingent truth when it comes to uh, daffodils because flowers in themselves come in all different sort of colors. So matters of fact don't really give you uh, necessary statements. For So for Hume and a group of, uh, called the empiricists, the basic idea of reason deals with either the way we're using language or with the way 
that we are, uh, or or kind of kind of out of habit more so than anything else. So there's no so in their head, honestly, they would even say there's no necessity that a fire would burn you. It's just out of habit that we think it's going to. Same thing with the sun and everything else. So there is no necessity. So what you end up seeing here is when it comes to necessary truths, two plus two equals four. That's only true in the traditional sense of how we'd be using true that it tells us something about the real world in the first traditional rational sense. In the next two places, mathematics and also the reason of Immanuel Kant, we're actually at a place of skepticism where two plus two equals four um, is one that our mind is imposing on the world. And secondly, it's just something out of habit that we've become accustomed to belief, but there's no necessity to it. And so when you, so the point of that is all this leading into the discussion of the cosmic skeptic. When it comes to the argument from reason, we're looking to use reason in the first sense. And this is where I think the argument's really, really strong against somebody like the cosmic skeptic. And when we begin to analyze the details of his argument, we're going to show that he, and granted, the debate at this point is maybe eight months old, and so maybe he's brushed up on it. But him being a biologist and being an empiricist and kind of the way he is, he can't get to rationality the first way. So he ends up undermining reason in two ways. One, he's going to undermine the traditional view. Secondly, he's going to deny that there's a kind of this autonomous faculty in man uh, that allows him to reason through arguments and everything else. So that's why I did all this, because it's backdrop going to that discussion. Because when you go to have a debate over an argument from reason with people, most people don't have a clue what reason is. And you need a clue what reason is. So hopefully that's helpful in getting some basic ideas, philosophical concepts down, that are just very basic to your world. And so when people begin to question that two plus two equals four, what they're really kind of at root doing is ending up in one of the latter camps of quote unquote reason. Um, it's something that we impose on the world or it's something that we believe just out of habit rather than the first view. And as Christians, we wanna come along and emphasize the first view because going back to last week's show, it's rooted in the Logos himself. And so the argument from reason is going to bring us back to the Logos himself. So hopefully that's helpful in this episode of the Camp Church Podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith at campuspreacher.com, uh, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, and then what's the other one? Campus Preacher on Instagram. And one day, hopefully I'll get those all in sync. Uh, Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going